Well, if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Romans chapter 6 as we get started this morning. Um, you know what I love about our church is, uh, our, our church is, I guess you could say somewhat interactive. So, I, I opened my sermon this morning, first hour, with what, what I thought was a rhetorical question. Apparently, it wasn't because as soon as I threw the question out there, everyone started trying to give me the answer. And one woman over here, she answered the question that I thought nobody could answer and then there blew my entire introduction, right? Um, so, so let's actually see, though, if, if you, second hour is as on it as first hour. So here it is. Oh, excuse me about that. If someone asked you to give them the significance of the Bible in one word, what word would you use? Are you serious? You listened to first hour right out of the gate. Are you kidding me? And you got it too, Gary. Wow, you guys are slick. Okay, I just got to stop asking questions to the congregation. Just roll into an introduction. Redemption. What I was actually going to say was the word freedom, which is tied to redemption. Now, redemption is one of those Christian words that really, above, above many other that, that, that we do have in Christianity, is one that we need to cherish. There are many words we cherish like forgiveness, salvation, deliverance, and those are all really good words. The reason, though, that redemption is something that we should cherish even more is because not only does it contain the ideas that these other words do, forgiveness, salvation, deliverance, but it also contains the cost of that forgiveness, the cost of that salvation, the cost of that deliverance. Embedded in the word redemption, and that, that word appears in the Old Testament and New Testament, and it's a pretty wide, uh, what's called a, a, a semantic domain. It covers a lot of turf. There's these concepts of being uh, redeemed from being a prisoner of war, being bought back from being in the slave market, being enchained uh, by, by, by either war or other circumstance, as well as the solution that you have been bought back, you have been fought for, you have been set free. And as we know from the New Testament, central to this idea of redemption and being set free is the person of Jesus Christ. So as we look in our series on, on, on Advent, the pictures of God's love, today we think about Christ as our Redeemer. And if we're going to think about Christ as our Redeemer, we need to give some thought to this concept of redemption, talk a little bit about what we've been redeemed from, what the cost of that redemption entailed, and then once we've established that, we have to ask the really important question, what now? Now that we have been set free, we have been redeemed, we've been set free, what difference does that make for our lives? So this morning, the sermon's going to have three simple points to it. Christ, who is our Redeemer from slavery, Christ who redeems us through His death, and Christ our Redeemer to freedom. So Christ, Redeemer from slavery, Christ who redeems us through His death, and Christ who redeems us to freedom. Let's look at them one at a time. Now, it is clear from the New Testament that the death of Christ on the cross is without doubt uh, the most beautiful picture of redemption that there can be. Jesus dying upon the cross, making new and eternal life possible, is really the, 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 uh, the culmination of God's redemptive plan in many ways. But did you know that in the Old Testament, there is a, a very huge picture of redemption that all the other stories, events, and motifs around redemption actually point to. Anybody know what that was, Tristan? <laughs> Anybody know what that event was in the Old Testament? Very close. Anyone else? It's a huge deal in the Old Testament. It's like the Jews always look back to as the sign of God's deliverance, promise, and faithfulness, the... 
The what? Well, kind of, but the Exodus. The Exodus, right? That was, through the Old Testament, the significant picture of God hearing the cries of His people, of God intervening, and God delivering His people. And you don't need to be a Christian. You don't need to be Jewish. You don't even need to be someone who goes to church to know the, the parameters of the story. Everyone knows it so well. The people of God enslaved under the hard hand of Egypt until God dramatically and powerfully delivers His people. Now, here's the thing, though. If you are a Christian, we cannot look at Old Testament stories and just leave them in the Old Testament. We need to be able to see all the events of Scripture through the lens of what God has done in the ultimate fulfillment of redemption, that's Jesus Christ. In other words, we got to let the Scriptures be the Christian Scriptures. If we don't see the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, then every time we're in the Old Testament, we're just talking about being good Jews. But because of Christ's arrival, that changes everything about the way we see the Old Testament. Now, most of you probably already have made these associations, but maybe not. So what I want to do as we talk about the Exodus, and when you think about it, all the elements are there, right? God's people trapped in slavery by the hand of Egypt. Cruelty, bondage, and misery. As a matter of fact, in in the actual historical account, Genesis 15 tells us, for 400 years, entire generations born, lived, and died in shackles. And then finally, they were powerless, they were hopeless, and they felt forgotten. Now, we need to recognize this is the historical reality, but if you pull the lens back to all that you know what God does in Scripture, those same dynamics can really describe the human predicament even today, that people are in bondage. They are in misery. They are shackled down, and they're powerless to change it. But what happens in the Exodus story, right? What happens? God intervenes and dramatically provides them. He raises up a deliverer and brings Charlton Heston to the scene, right? Right? He brings Moses to be the deliverer that leads the people of God out of Egypt into the promised land. So what I want to do is just quickly, briefly, show four points to show that the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament was actually foreshadowing the reality of the redemption in the New Testament that Jesus Christ fulfills. The first one is this, the Exodus, the Exodus redemption had originated in the sovereign, loving, electing grace of God. It isn't something that the people of Israel deserved. It isn't something they merited. They didn't earn it. God in His grace and His love elected to save them and he, because He loved them. Look at what Deuteronomy 7 says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God bring about the Exodus? Is that because Israel was so wonderful, so powerful, he wanted them to be his representatives? No, but because God says, I'm going to choose you. You you weren't even the the most of the people, you were the fewest. But to me, by treasured possession, I set my love upon you. It was God's saving, electing, loving grace. 
Secondly, the, the Exodus redemption was accomplished by God's almighty power and not the strength of man. There was nothing they could do to deliver themselves. The Lord says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. See, Israel didn't partake in their deliverance. They didn't rise up as insurrectionists. They were powerless. They were, they were hopeless. Many of them even feared Moses to work because of the repercussions. But God came in sovereignly and delivered His people by His strong arm. Thirdly, the Exodus redemption delivered only those, interestingly enough, that would trust in the protecting power of the sacrificial lamb. It's interesting, and in the greatest event, when the death angel would come, the Passover would be instituted, it wasn't a carte blanche, everyone gets to be in on this, just because you're a Jew, just because you're the people of God, there was something that needed to be done. Exodus chapter 12, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This is why, by the way, it's called Passover. The angel passes over, and no plague will befall to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So Moses goes and tells the elders, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. You know what the lintel is, right? It's the cross beam on the top and the two doorposts. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Now, it's probably clear to most of you, but just in case you haven't made the connection, this is what I'm talking about, and we need to be kind of careful with this, but every page of the, New of the Old Testament is saying, this isn't the fulfillment. This isn't where it all comes to a head. God is doing something. And I look at this passage as one of those. Because notice where the blood of the lamb has to go. On both doorposts of the house and on the lintel, which is on the top, which you would expect that the blood drips down to the floor. And what do you have? Now, maybe that's reading too much into it, but the four points of a cross, I get that. But when you see this kind of thing happening over and over and over, you have to realize that the New Testament is telling its own story, but it's pointing forward to even a greater story. So, the Exodus was the result of God's electing, sovereign, loving grace to His people. The Exodus was the result of God's strong arm delivering His people, not through their own might. The Exodus required that they put their trust in the blood of the Lamb to cover them and save them, and the Exodus redemption resulted in the creation of a new community, freed from slavery in order to serve its gracious Redeemer and Lord. This is what the Lord says in Exodus 4 and 8. And I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go, sons referring to all the people of Israel, let my son go that he may serve me, chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. So just, I mean, there was more we could dive into, but I think you get the picture that the Exodus, while in and of itself a significant Old Testament event of God's salvation, as we read it through the lens of what Jesus has done, you're, you don't have to look very far to say, to see, oh man, this is pointing to something else. 
This is pointing to even a greater deliverance. This is pointing to a greater slavery. By the way, that is one of the messages the Bible tells us. As horrible as the slavery of the Israelites were, it was actually a metaphor speaking of a a, a more horrible slavery. And as beautiful as the freedom that those Israelites obtained, it was a metaphor speaking of a more fantastic freedom that was yet to come. You see, Egypt's chains could only shackle their bodies, but sin's chains is the thing that shackles the soul. What the Bible teaches us is ultimately slavery is not a physical situation. It's a spiritual situation. That's easy for me to say, but Frederick Douglass said something similar. You might know the name, um, the narrative life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, read it this past summer. Douglass was on, his, on a train on the way to Pennsylvania or through Pennsylvania. And because of his color, they made him sit in the baggage cart. Even though he paid the fare like every other passenger, because he was black, they made him sit in the passenger cart, or excuse me, the, 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 the baggage cart. Some of the, the white passengers went back to the baggage cart, and, and, and one of them said to Mr. Douglas, Mr. Douglas, I am so sorry that you have been degraded in this manner. To which Douglas replied, straightening himself up on the box that he was sitting on, he said, they cannot degrade Frederick, Frederick Douglass. I love it when people speak of themselves in the third person, right? You know, it's serious. They cannot degrade Frederick Douglass. The soul that is in me, no man can degrade. I am not the one that is being degraded one account of this treatment, but those who are inflicting it upon me have degraded themselves. Friends, very few people know slavery like Frederick Douglass knew slavery. You just need to read his story. But Douglass realized, as horrible as slavery was, it is not the slavery that can be thrust upon us that degrades the human soul. It is the slavery that binds the soul that does the most damage. And of all the righteous forms of emancipation, it is that Jesus Christ is able to break the chains that oppress the soul. And the reality is, in, in South Orange County, very few of us, if any of us at all, are going to have to come face to face with physical slavery. But if we conclude from that that people are not in bondage, we would be mistaken, wouldn't we? You all know people who are still living in bondage and a different kind of slavery, a slavery, a spiritual slavery, whether they're in bondage to substances, maybe they're slaves to other people's opinions, or slaves to their own image that they're trying to maintain, they're slaves to the hurts of the past, they're slaves to the fears of the future, they feel forgotten, they feel powerless, they feel hopeless, and they need deliverance. And as mighty as, or as Moses led the people of Israel out of uh, Egypt into the promised land, and if you know the story, by the way, you know that that actually, that broke their physical slavery, right? But if you know the story, it did not break their slavery. As a matter of fact, that's what the rest of the Old Testament is trying to unpack for us, that yeah, their, their physical chains were broken, but their deeper spiritual chains remained. But the point is, as Moses delivered God's people from slavery, it was pointing forward to a greater deliverance, a greater deliverer, a greater redeemer. His name was Jesus Christ that would in fact deliver all God's people and from the most oppressive slavery at all, the slavery of sin. 
But that kind of redemption, that kind of redemption comes at a cost. Remember, the word redemption in the Old and New Testament has the idea of, actually, we use that uh, a little bit in our own culture, right? So when you get a coupon to get a discount or receive something, what do you have to do with the coupon? You redeem the coupon, right? There is a payment for that transaction that's built into the word redemption, redeem. And it always comes at a cost, and that's our next point, that Christ redeems, and how does He do it? Through His death. Now, I did say that the Exodus is the redemption story of the Old Testament, but it's not the only redemption story. And what I want to do briefly is give you two vignettes of other redemptive stories because if we don't have this fuller idea of redemption, you can be tempted to think that when God redeems people like He did to His people in Israel, it's kind of like a presidential executive order, right? You just, here comes the document, He signs it, someone go take care of it, no big deal, move on to the next thing. That's furthest from the truth. God's redemption of us is not some objective, impassioned, or, or dispassionate executive order that he's not too invested in. The Bible tells us God's truly invested in our redemption. And we see that from these two stories that kind of fill it out, that kind of personalize redemption. The first one is from the book of Ruth. Some of you are familiar with that. Ruth was a young widow who left everything behind in her homeland of Moab to stay with her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, without husbands, without sons, the future was bleak. Ruth, as well as Naomi, but particularly because Ruth was still a young woman, had no, no hope of a redeemed future. Poverty was all she had to look forward to. Now, of course, that's from her earthly perspective. Ruth, and if you don't know the story, go home and read it. It's four chapters. It'll take you 10 minutes. Ruth had no idea that God was using her situation to, to fill out this picture of redemption in such a beautiful, tender way. As a matter of fact, if you look in your like, table of contents, in all the historical books of the Old Testament, from Joshua through Esther, the words redeemed, redeemer, and redemption occur way more often in the book of Ruth in just four chapters than all the other historical books. That's how important this theme is in the book of Ruth. Well, as you know the story, in the midst of her poverty and trying to support her and her mother-in-law, Ruth begins to work in the field of a man named Boaz, who is a kind of like Christ figure to this situation. He's also the kinsman redeemer to Ruth. That simply means that if anyone could redeem Ruth, he would be legally allowed to do so. And so, Boaz extends a hand of care to Ruth. Coincidentally, Ruth ends up working in his field, and coincidentally, Boaz catches, Ruth catches Boaz's eye and says, who is this woman? Oh, she is uh, Ruth, came back from Moab with her mother Naomi. And so, Boaz in mercy says, have her keep gleaning in our fields and watch out for her. We find out later that they are, he is a kinsman redeemer. So, Ruth responds by wanting Boaz to redeem her. I'm truncating the story here, but go home and read it, which Boaz says he will do. He gladly does. And in order to do that, paying lots of money in accordance to Hebrew law, paying off all the debts and obligations and responsibilities that, that Ruth may have had and, and Ruth's husband may have had, Boaz takes care of all of it so that Ruth can be his wife. And the story ends that way. Of course, we, we find out later as well, though, that Ruth is the 
mother of Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is then the father of King David, who is then the ancestor of Jesus Christ. But that's something completely different. The point is, we see redemption here, and it's not the, the power and fierceness and ferocity of Exodus, but this tenderness, this intimacy, and this care, and this loving care for this individual woman. So, the idea of redemption is filled out a little bit more that it is powerful, but also intimate. It is corporate, but also personal. It is unstoppable, yet it's also very caring. But the picture of redemption gets filled out even more. We get a hint of it in Ruth in that Boaz has to pay off debts to to have free uh, Ruth to have for himself, but we don't get the sense of the pain and, and that it hits the Lord, and that's where comes in the prophet Hosea. If you're not familiar with Hosea, it's a much larger book, 14 chapters, but we did a series in June called the Book of the Twelve. We did a sermon just covering the book of Hosea if you want to get up to speed with what Hosea is about. It's a fascinating book. The essence of the story is this. God calls a prophet to marry a woman who will be unfaithful to him most of the days of their lives together, right? I mean, of all the things you expect God to ask of you, that's not one of them, right? I, I have some young sons, and they want to love the Lord, and they want to be, you know, faithful Christians. What they are not expecting God to do to them, ask of them, is to be committed to someone who will be unfaithful to them, right? That's not what we expect, but that's exactly what God asked of Hosea. The reason was God wanted Hosea's marriage to Gomer to be an illustration that demonstrates God's faithfulness to unfaithful Israel. That no matter how unfaithful Israel would be, no matter the pain that God would feel, the betrayal, the humiliation, He would come after her. And so as the book ends, some of you may know, uh, Hosea is divided into two chapters or two sections. The first section is the narrative of Hosea and Gomer. The second section unpacks that. But towards the end of the narrative, Hosea goes to the slave market to buy back his wife, Gomer, because at this point of her life, no other man had wanted her. She was only good at this point to be a a beast of burden. And so there's Hosea redeeming his wife back from the slave market. Unlike in Ruth, where we talk, where we learn about the financial price to get Ruth back, that's not mentioned at all in Hosea, because that's not the point. Hosea's already paid the price. He's paid it dearly. As a priest, as a prophet, as a man of just social standing, his reputation is shot. The ridicule and mockery that this man must have faced regularly by the men who had his wife. The loss of his honor in an honor-based culture cannot have a price placed on it. And this is the price Hosea paid. And this, yet, as an illustration of God's love for us, His people, is the price He's willing to pay. But yet, what what does Hosea show us about redemption? He shows us that it's personal to God. That God getting us back, it hits Him. It cuts Him. It costs Him something to go there and say, I'm taking you back because you're my bride regardless of what you may have done. That's a beautiful picture. 
that God loves you fiercely. Whatever you might have done, it cannot put you out of the sphere of His love. Whatever it might be in your past, whatever baggage you think you carry around that may, make, may make you unlovable by God, Hosea proves to us that is not the case. God's love is, un, is relentless. You really see that in Hosea. It will not stop. It will not be stopped until its love is placed on the one in whom it has chosen to love. And that's what we learn from Hosea. So the picture of redemption in the Old Testament is that it is powerful, it is sovereign, it moves nations, but it's intimate and caring and tender, and it, it costs God, and it does not matter what we have done. If, we have, if His affections are upon us, He will love us relentlessly. That's the picture we have of redemption. Now, as amazing as that picture of redemption is that both Boaz and Hosea display to us, I want to say something here to remind us, they are still sinners like you and I. So, as amazing as the story of Ruth and Boaz and Hosea and Gomer, they are still just sinners loving other sinners, sinners trying to redeem other sinners, and it falls short a little bit. In some sense, as great as these pictures are, it doesn't do God's redemption justice. It's kind of like exchanging a a gently used toy for another gently used toy. It's a shameless pitch for our Mackenzie drop-in shop. What I mean is, Boaz is like this, this family puzzle that's, that's yeah, it's, a, it's full, it's complete, but the, the picture's faded and the, the edges are soggy because your family poured water on it when it was on the kitchen table, right? So, so you're going to get something else, but it itself wasn't all that great. And Hosea, as wonderful as, love, as his love is, he's, he's like a toy that has all the lights, but they're not all working maybe as best as they could, but hey, it's still something. See, that's not how God's redemption of us is. The comparison, and even this falls short, it, it's, it's as if you're giving back, you're exchanging your dad's brand new Ferrari. Or, no, I shouldn't say your dad's brand new Ferrari. Well, it's you giving up your brand new Ferrari, and you get your dad's old Chevette, right? It's similar to someone exchanging an S-class Mercedes, and you get a Gremlin, right? Or an Alfa Romeo Quadrifoglio, that amazing car, and you get a Pinto, right? Who gives up a Mercedes or an Alfa Romeo for a Gremlin or a Pinto, God does. By the way, there are no Mercedes and Alfa Romeos at our drop-in shop, just being clear. But the point is, even that comparison fails to do justice to the comparison of what God gives up and what He gains. Because the Scripture tells us what God paid for our redemption, and it's a price that's beyond reckoning. 1 Peter 1, 18, 19 You know God redeemed you from the empty lives you inherited, not with gold or with silver, which ultimately are worthless, but by the precious blood of the sinless, spotless lamb. God bought us back. He freed us from the things that enslave us at great cost to Himself. Because of His power, yes. Because of His awesomeness, yes. But because of His tender love towards His people. And my friends, if you are a Christian, that's you. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, Romans 8 tells us. Regardless of what you have done, the grace of God, the love of God is relentless in pursuing you. 
But now we have to ask the important question, what now? Christ has redeemed us from slavery. Christ has redeemed us with His death. What has He freed us to? If Christ has redeemed you, He's made you free, but free to do what? Free to do what you want or free to do what you should? And this one's really important because in our culture, freedom is meant to say freedom from rather than freedom to. Freedom from responsibility, freedom from obligation, freedom from duty, right? Which is the wrong understanding of freedom entirely. If you know someone who lives for nothing else but for their own wants, you know how not free they are. In other words, friends, modern notions of freedom just lead to more slavery. We become slaves to other people's opinions or thoughts about us. We become slaves to the images we try to maintain. We become slaves to our house payments, car payments, vacation payments, boat payments, credit card payments, so that we can maintain a lifestyle, so we give you an image of the kind of lives we want you to think we lead. Even if we can't afford them and we've been denied them, we will go into slavery to portray that image. Slaves to habits we willingly embrace only to be betrayed by them. Regardless of what those habits are, those habits might be substances, that, that habit might be pornography, you name the habit. But everyone, n- no one that I know that's enchained to some kind of substance or behavioral addiction says, I want to sign up for this kind of slavery. Sign me up. No. Every one of them look to that thing, whether it's a bottle, whether it's a pill, whether it's a, it's a, a website, whatever it might be, everyone looks to it as, this will just take the edge off. This will just give me a distraction. This is, this is what I need right now. I won't let it get out of hand. This is something I need to do. All they're doing is putting the chains on, putting the chains on themselves. We know that slavery. Friends, being enslaved to the desires of a sinful heart is a horrible way to live. This is why Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5.1, it is to freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So here's the question. If Christ has made us free, then how do we avoid these other destructive slaveries? And in typical fashion, the Bible answers it paradoxically. Here's how you do that. You become the slave of another master. What? Yeah, let's go full circle. Did you notice what the Lord said in Exodus? Let them go so they serve me. Let him go so that they serve me. Right? There are a few of you who still remember Bob Dylan. You guys know what I'm going to say. You've got to serve somebody. Friends, you've got to serve somebody. Paradoxically, the way we find our freedom is not by casting off our chains and doing whatever we want. It's by binding our heart to a gracious and kind and loving and tender master. Okay, you should be in Romans 6 by now. Let me, let me read it. Open it up, Romans 6. Uh, we're going to start at verse 16. I'm just going to read the end of the chapter because Paul talks about this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented yourselves as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that's that pattern I was talking about, so now present yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 20, and when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have become set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, we were made to serve. We were not made to be autonomous mini kings and queens calling the shots over our own empires. We were image bearers. We were made to give our lives away, to live for things bigger and beyond ourselves. If you were here two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago when Bob talked about, made the point that the happiest and freest amongst us are not the ones who live for themselves or the things of this world. But, according to 2 Corinthians 5, for him who for their sake died and was raised again. Friends, use your freedom to serve God. Use your freedom to pursue the purposes of God. Use your freedom to make the name of Christ known. Let me just conclude by by wrapping it up because this is a paradox. You're saying, so freedom comes from slavery? That's what Romans 6 is teaching? Yes, and we understand this very well, especially if you're an athlete or a musician. Let Let me use an illustration you'll get. In order to be a, a, the, the musician you want to be or the athlete you want to be, it, you just don't jump on a field and start playing. You don't just pick up an instrument and start jamming. You actually submit yourself to, to the yoke of hours and hours and hours of playing scales, running drills, practicing forms. You do that all the time. You deliberately bind yourself to these disciplines. Can I use that metaphor? You chain yourself to this slavery over and over, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, so what? So that when you get on that field, when you pick up that instrument, you are as free as a bird. You play with dexterity. You listen and you can improvise. You are performing the way you want to be. You are no longer held back by your lack of knowledge or ability, but that discipline, that rigor has actually set you free to be what you always wanted to be. We understand this concept beautifully in most parts of our lives. It's not any different in your spiritual life. Friends, the Scriptures, I'm making the case in the same way when we bind ourselves to God's Word, His commands, and His disciplines, when we bind ourselves to that, we are gaining the freedom to be what He actually truly made us to be and taking off the shackles of this crazy world that has chained us to other things. That's the paradox of Christianity, isn't it? The more we give ourselves to our master, the more we become free to be what we always were intended to be. So what's the significance of the Bible in one word? Freedom. Absolutely freedom. Freedom in Christ, freedom because of Christ, and freedom toward Christ. Let me pray for us that we enjoy that kind of freedom. Father, we come before you, and, and I can't but think of, this is because of the way my mind works, 
William Wallace in that movie Braveheart crying out freedom because that was the most important thing. Father, that is something we seek and long for, but we live in a world that just chains us to other things. And we think it's, it's, it's a freedom because it's what we want, and we don't realize that our very desires, our very wants are messed up. And so, Father, like that hymn says, what we want to do is give our hearts to you. Oh, here are our hearts. Take and seal it. Bind us to the courts above. We feel it, Lord. We wander. And so, Lord, in your grace, would you redeem us, not just from physical oppression, but from the things that chain our souls. Help us to see our chains. Help us to see we need a deliverer. Help us, like the children of Israel, like Ruth, cry out to be redeemed. Father, we thank you for it. We thank you that when we do, you answer powerfully, tenderly, quickly, and eternally. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.